Sometime around the beginning of May 1873, Dr David Livingstone died in a remote village in what's now Zambia. He had, in truth, achieved very little in his life, and so far as he could see, nothing at all toward ending the slave trade, which had been his greatest hope. For a while after Henry Morton Stanley's New York Herald newspaper stunt, setting out to find Livingstone in 1871, he was never really lost, the Doctor had been taken up by the new popular press, far away in America and Britain. They'd turned him into a romantic hero. But by 1873, even that was beginning to die down. So what finally made Livingstone into a lasting legend was what happened after he died. Oh, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The traditional story of Livingstone's death is that his faithful African servants found him dead, kneeling by his bed in an attitude of prayer. They buried his heart under the local village Mpundu tree, but then they embalmed his body, wrapped it in bark and carried it a thousand miles to the coast so that the great man could be returned to his people. It was an act of devotion that finally proved beyond doubt that Livingstone had been a saint. But... As historian Joanna Lewis has shown, this story quickly breaks down when you look more closely. There were, at the time, and have been ever since, conflicting stories among Africans about exactly where and when Livingstone died. Well, that matters since African memory and oral transmission is extraordinarily accurate, as I discovered when making a film at Magamero in Malawi. African village memories there tallied exactly down to the very words spoken with British colonial documents written 75 years before. Extraordinary. In Livingston's case, the confusion probably came about because village chiefs didn't want white men dying in their jurisdiction from the completely justified fear that it would lead to difficulties with the British or Portuguese authorities. Nor did Livingston's final companions want to pay the village fees for burial. With the generous supplies that Stanley had left him, Livingstone had been able to travel with a larger party than usual, in fact 60 or 70. They included a number of women who cooked for and nursed him and had perhaps, suggests historian Joanna Lewis, though she seems to cite no evidence, served him in other ways. Livingstone's diary also talks about eventually freeing some of these women. Well, what it suggests is that the great anti-slavery campaigner had in fact purchased some of the men and women in his party and instead of freeing them straight away, was using them as his slaves. Confused. Yeah, it is a bit confusing. Anyway, so far as we can tell, as soon as Livingston had been found dead in his hut, arguments broke out within this large group of followers. Some of them wanted to bury Livingston immediately. Others were afraid that they wouldn't be believed or paid for their many months of service if they just went back to the coast without proof of their employer's death. White men had a well-earned reputation for disbelieving Africans, as I indeed discovered myself from my postbag after my film being transmitted on the BBC. People simply wouldn't believe anything the Africans had said. 
Well, there was a simple answer. Returning a mummified traveller's body home as proof of death was a common custom in this part of Africa. So Abdullah Susi and James Chuma, who had first joined Livingston 10 years before in 1863, persuaded the others to have the body embalmed. And that's the actual reason that not only Livingston's heart, but all his internal organs were removed and buried under the village Mpundu, sacred tree. Livingston's body was then salted and probably strung up for some days in a tree to dry. Then it was packed in the fetal position and carried by a team of Livingston's former African companions to Zanzibar. It took five months which was actually extraordinarily rapid for so enormous a distance. The body had to be repackaged several times on the way because the mummification had been carried out rather hurriedly. As Joanna Lewis points out, such a journey was complicated and dangerous and ends once and for all the notion, as for example the Times and other papers suggested at the time, that Africans would surely never have been capable of organising such a thing themselves. But the journey also involved a number of fights with local people, including several attacks on villages and a number of violent deaths. Well, that hadn't been Livingston's style at all. The thing was that most of those in the party had originally been sent out by Stanley, and their aggressive attitude all too obviously reflected his. It was a very ominous sign for the future. Movingly, in June 1873, just a few weeks after Livingston had apparently died, his friend, Dr John Kirk, the British consul at Zanzibar, at last signed a treaty with the Portuguese, closing Zanzibar to the slave trade. Livingston's biographer, Tim Geale, writes that it was a vivid account of a massacre by slave traders that Livingston had witnessed years before and which Stanley had finally delivered to Britain in 1872 that had finally pushed the government into action. Well, Livingston's account of the massacre of four or five hundred Africans at Nyangwe certainly exists. It was originally written by Livingston in ink he had made himself on the pages of an old copy of the London Standard. The ink has faded almost completely, and it's only recently been possible to read it using special light. We know that Livingston subsequently copied it all out and modified it, cutting out certain sections that seemed to show that he shared some of the responsibility for the massacre. But Gilles' story about the government being pushed to take action against the slave trade on account of Livingston's witness, well, it may be true, but the reference that Gilles gives doesn't really add up. The fact was that after the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, the balance of power along Africa's east coast had been significantly shifting in Britain's favour anyway. The Commons Committee had already recommended tough action against Portuguese complicity in slaving two years before, and it was probably only a matter of time before the British persuaded their old allies to come into line. Nonetheless, it would be comforting, if perhaps generous, to put it down as Livingston's final achievement. In some ways, it would have been his greatest. But, like everything else in his story, his role would have to be seen as just a part of something much bigger. When they had reached Zanzibar, the Africans carrying Livingston's body found that the white men there had well, they'd really lost interest in him. Along the way, the Africans had met yet another Royal Geographical Society expedition just setting out to find Livingston. Well, the RGS commander promptly commandeered all of Livingston's scientific instruments and then bluntly proposed us to bury the body there and then. Had he himself not been sick with fever, he might have succeeded and the Livingston legend might have been buried with the body. As it was, Susie and Chuma led their party away and pressed on for the coast. 
When they got there, they discovered that Consul John Kirk was in London, and there was, of course, nothing at all left in Livingston's always rather tiny expedition fund to pay them. The acting consul fought out a little for them all from his own pocket, and then he sent them home. Sissy and Tumor would in fact be brought to England themselves in 1874 to help in the editing of Livingston's final journals. There's a photograph of them in England with two of Livingston's children and the editor of the journals on our website. Once it got to Zanzibar, Livingston's body was put into a new wooden coffin, in fact by a Catholic mission. For a month, nobody really knew what to do with it until a telegram arrived from the Foreign Secretary in London, Lord Derby, instructing it to be brought to England. The government, however, would not pay. (laughs) One of the Africans who'd been with Livingston throughout his last journey discovered that he would be able to accompany the coffin all the way to London. He was an ex-slave, an ex-mission student, a literate Yao man called Yamuza, who'd been given the Christian name Jacob Wainwright. His old mission school, sensing an opportunity for some good publicity, had apparently put up the money for him to go. But nobody was paying for Livingston's coffin. So the coffin would have to be got back by any ship that was available and would be willing to give it space for free in the hold. It was eventually rowed out to a warship, HMS Vulture. It's perhaps an unfortunate name for the task of taking on the dead man's remains. (laughs) I see what you mean, yeah. And started to make its way very slowly back through the new Suez Canal to England. The coffin would end up being bundled from boat to boat four times before it got there. Meanwhile, the acting consul at Zanzibar, remember his friend Dr John Kirk was in England, had quickly tapped out the news that Livingston's body had been brought to the coast. He sent the message along the new telegraph cable that now linked him to Aden and from there to the Foreign Office in London. And the message arrived hours later on the 27th of January 1874. But by then, an entire new dimension of this story had already mushroomed into existence. Livingston's final African companions carried his body to Zanzibar to avoid any suspicion of foul play among the white authorities. Sensible. They they probably also hoped to receive the pay they were owed for the years they'd served Livingston. Absolutely. Well, the acting British consul at Zanzibar did his best to pay off the men from his own pocket and sent the news of Livingston's death along his newly installed telegraph wire to Aden, where it was forwarded to London. But in Aden, the cable was intercepted by a Reuters agent. Like press associations in the US and Britain... Reuters had recently emerged as a major news organisation to serve the insatiable appetite of the new cheap popular press. In particular, Reuters was discovering it could exploit the new telegraph cables that were being laid around the world. Which is why they had an agent in the Aden Telegraph office. Canny. So within hours of reaching Aden, the news had been sent on by them to the London papers and from there spread immediately across the country. And across the world. It was, of course, an unmissable excuse for pages and pages of popular pathos. Livingston's remains had been carried hundreds of miles to the coast by his faithful followers. It was almost too good to be true. The doctor had definitely now begun his final transfiguration into a legend and also into a plaything of the popular press. He became, in fact, part saint, part boy's own hero. 
OK, yeah, Poison actually launched four years later, published by the Religious Tract Society as a way to encourage muscular Christianity and imperial morals among little boys. I never knew Boyzone was Christian. Well, it was originally Christian. Anyway, he became part saint, part Boyzone hero. The popular New York Herald's lightweight stablemate, the London Daily Telegraph, simpered on. We may say that no man ever better did his life's work or kept a purer and kinder heart, along with courage so dauntless, endurance so heroic and purpose so resolutely fixed. Historian Joanna Lewis argues that the column may well have been part written by Stanley himself. <laughs> Sounds right. On the day after the news broke, the much more serious Western Morning News devoted two and a half whole columns to Livingston's obituary. Himself, the simplest of men, clad in homespun broadcloth, untitled but not unhonoured, he had about him many of the attributes of a hero. The record of his career reads like a romance. It is a history at once picturesque and enthralling. It reads like a romance. Indeed it did. It was, of course, the perfect tale for the tabloids, who'd already given Livingston... As we saw last time, in fact, in the words of his editor, the Reverend Horace Waller... ...a halo of romance. And the papers found they could keep the story alive as the body made its painfully slow way all the way to England. Was it really Livingston's mortal remains? Mm-hmm. What would a post-mortem discover? How had he actually died? Would the slave trade now finally be suppressed? Livingston's death also played into deep old concerns about the notion of a supposedly liberal, civilising British empire that was being expanded and maintained by violence. Surely Livingston had been an example of gentleness and peace. In fact, as historian Joanna Lewis points out, this debate about the empire was partly an invention of Stanley's. You see, at Suez, Stanley had intercepted the P&O liner, the SS Malwa, which was the latest of the vessels that had been persuaded to pass the parcel. <laughs> Stanley had stormed aboard and stayed until the ship had reached Alexandria. And he used the time to tutor the young man Jacob Wainwright, the ex-mission boy, on the press questions he could expect... Or more precisely, the questions which Stanley himself expected to put to him... <laughs> ...when the coffin reached Britain. Stanley then made it his business to dash overland through France and get to Britain before Wainwright and the coffin did. So, Stanley was the first on hand when the malware reached Southampton, and there he was able to secure yet another scoop. An exclusive interview with Jacob Wainwright which, of course, was exactly what he'd been planning all along. Did the Doctor ever have occasion to fire his gun? asked Stanley. No, sir, Wainwright dutifully replied. The Master was not fond of firing his gun. Which was, as we know, strictly speaking true, but, well, it was less than the whole story. But it was presumably what Stanley had told Wainwright to say. Stanley also informed the Christian press that Livingston was, quote, a wonderfully effective missionary. Well, at least in a preparatory kind of way. <laughs> what? How can you be a preparatory? Anyway. <laughs> Which was perhaps rather a generous description since Livingston had ended his life having himself made no lasting converts to his faith. But while the cheap popular press was falling over itself to claim Livingston as theirs, there was an ominous silence from London's smart and scientific society. You see, the new government was Tory and it had not agreed to send Livingstone on another of his wasteful tours. And, as we see in our series on British enslavement, the Tories had never been interested in abolishing slavery. 
So the abolitionist Reverend Dr Livingston was no hero of theirs. The president of the Royal Geographical Society that year, Sir Bartle Frere, extolled the doctor as, quote, an Englishman who has been shown to have the best features <laughs> of the Anglo-Saxon character. Well, Livingston, of course, had been born near Glasgow, and on a subsequent visit to that city, Frere was compelled to, well, change his tune. But most of the geographers at the RGS doubted whether the Africans were telling the truth about the coffin containing Livingston's remains. Not until they opened the box would they believe it. No, certainly not. And even if the famous and much-loved Dr Livingston really was dead, nobody was apparently interested in paying for a public funeral. His family certainly couldn't afford it. The Dean of Westminster Abbey came forward with a proposal that Livingston be buried there. But nobody, including even the Abbey, would stump up the £37 that it would cost. It could not have been clearer that Livingston had outstayed his welcome with the movers and shakers who had money. Well, it wasn't really surprising. The Royal Geographical Society had already paid for several expeditions to find a man who, according to his friend Dr Kirk, had simply not wanted to be found and had refused to be rescued when he was, and had then treacherously allowed himself to be found by a journalist and a journalist for an American paper of all the things in the world. Livingston had also spent all the money for his last expedition, such as it was, which wasn't much, so that embarrassingly the acting consul at Zanzibar had ended up having to pay off his men. Out of his own pocket. And just like the last time on the Zambezi, Livingston hadn't achieved anything worth mentioning. Much more important, though oddly unnoticed by historians, Livingston's great patron in London, Sir Roderick Murchison, had died in 1871. And with Murchison gone, apparently nobody else in the scientific or political establishments could think of a use for a dead explorer with a rather awkward record of failed expeditions. The only man who could think of a use for a dead explorer turned out to be Edwin Jones, the mayor of Southampton. The historian Joanna Lewis suggests the idea came to Jones because Southampton's fortunes had recently been on the slide. In fact, so much so that the fashionable cruise line P&O were threatening to pull out. Southampton needed a shot of good publicity and the news that it was a P&O ship, the SS Malwa, that was carrying Livingston's coffin and that it was intending to dock first at Southampton well, was just too good to miss. There was, however, a last-minute panic when the Livingston family asked for the coffin not to be landed, but to be taken straight to London. It took a visit to the Foreign Office in London by Southampton's redoubtable mayor and town clerk for the original plan to be reinstated. Livingston would come ashore at Southampton's Royal Pier. Well, as the coffin got slowly closer and closer, Southampton's MP, himself an active anti-slavery campaigner, jumped to his feet in the House of Commons and raised a formal question. Why had nothing been done to organise anything at all in London? A proper funeral, even a procession? Yeah, yeah. Well, the press continued to stir public opinion and a public fund was set up to support the family. Well, government was at last shamed into providing them with a pension. But only when an anonymous businessman offered to pay for the funeral at Westminster Abbey did the government feel embarrassed enough to stump up the cost for that too. The Royal Geographical Society grudgingly consented to organise it, though its committee only ever met once. Meanwhile, Stanley and the press pack were having a field day. The papers began printing and reprinting Livingston's letters on enslavement, letters on African polygamy and equality for women. Stanley produced his own version of Livingston's last hours and words. 
Preacher and doctor, he was, as Lloyd's weekly newspaper put it, quotes, one of the apostles of the present age. As historian Justin Livingston has argued, the doctor's humble origins and his long and well-publicised physical sufferings were a particular badge of honour for a saint and hero. Never, perhaps in all the history of human enterprise, marvelled the British Quarterly Review, quote, was a career of physical discovery so constantly crowned by religious devotion. Eulogies, even from ordinary folk, were pouring into the letters' pages. The mayor of Southampton's grand Livingston reception lasted an entire weekend. There were sermons, a procession and a dinner with a guest list of distinguished visitors. Problem was, the body hadn't still arrived. What? <laughs> Bad weather delayed it at the last minute somewhere outside the port in the Solent or the Channel. And still, doubts lingered on about whether it was Livingston's body at all. Very early on Wednesday, the 15th of April, 1874, the P&O ship, the SS Malwar, with its white-lined black hull and its twin grey funnels, finally hove into view at Southampton. The mayor and his brethren lined up on the royal pier in their fur-lined robes. But then they watched in horror as the ship veered off towards a completely different quay. <laughs> it was running out of coal and was heading off to be refuelled. bit more important than a coffin. Edwin Jones, the town's resourceful mayor, hurriedly managed to hire another boat and have the body transshipped yet again for one last time. So at last, as the band solemnly played, the coffin was finally delivered to Sir Hampton's Royal Pier. There it was laid on a gun carriage and processed a mile through the town to the railway station, followed by Henry Morton Stanley himself, the Livingston family and every dignitary the mayor could think of. Everything and everyone was extravagantly draped in black, accompanied by gun salute, muffled bells and enormous crowds who even to the journalist's surprise wept openly. A few dissident voices suggested that a quiet internment by some African lake might have been more appropriate. One fisherman complained that his boat had taken a direct hit from one of the saluting guns. I thought they fired blanks. But, you know, they... <laughs> but everyone agreed that Southampton had covered itself in glory and to the mayor's intense relief... P&O liners continued docking at the port until 1881. And in fact, they went back in 1961. They're still there, as I can testify. My grandparents lived in Southampton and we used to go down and see the big liners. Well, it was all very different in London. The train from Southampton arrived at Waterloo Station. On the platform were just a couple of railway employees and a handful of passengers. It's very different. A short line of carriages took the family and the body unnoticed through the streets to the Royal Geographical Society. There it was subjected to a post-mortem by a prestigious surgeon, Sir William Ferguson. He reported the remains were unrecognisable. Oh, no. <laughs> but reported Sir William where the left deltoid joined the humerus. He discovered a badly set fracture. The unmistakable mark of the famous attack by the lion, the break that Livingston had reset himself decades before, and the cause of Livingston's almost useless left arm. Yes, said Sir William. Everyone could at last be reassured that the Africans had been telling the truth. This was indeed the body of Dr David Livingstone. So now the press turned from questioning the Africans' reliability 
to asking whether they could or would have ever achieved such a feat as carrying the body a thousand miles without European help. Susie and Chuma had been left in Africa and couldn't answer for themselves. David Livingston's son, Thomas, found himself in a bitter newspaper battle to defend the Africans' honour. He quoted his father's journal. To doubt the Africans, the doctor had written, was, quote, nothing but the most pitiable puerility. By now, the press had moved on to bringing out bumper souvenir editions with accounts of Livingston's life and plenty of illustrations. The family had a private ceremony with a Church of Scotland minister at the Royal Geographical Society. The Abbey funeral was an all-ticket affair, and demand far outran supply. It was Saturday, and crowds in mourning dress lined the route. But, well, you have to say that inside the Abbey everything was rather lacklustre. The choir was reported to be rather scruffy and under-rehearsed. Wealthy London society was notable by its almost complete absence. The Queen had supplied some mourning carriages and a wreath which made it to the church only just on time. But there was nothing of Livingston's on the coffin at all, even his famous blue cap. Nobody had thought to put up a map of Africa. Even the African coffin had been replaced by a basic English oak one. This had all been organised by the Royal Geographical Society, so it's them we can blame. Indeed. Jacob Wainwright, the Yao man, you remember the missionary boy he'd been given the money to come to England, he was one pallbearer. Stanley had somehow also got himself appointed as another. His hair an odd and rather embarrassing shade of green after an attempt at dying that had gone wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He'd brought along his own African servant, and it seems that he and Wainwright were the only Africans there. The dean, whose idea it had been in the first place to have him buried at Westminster Abbey, preached that Livingston was a hero as Wilberforce had been. Uh, A historically difficult notion as we see in our series on the ending of enslavement, and one badly calculated to win the sympathy of the new Tory government. Who, after all, always opposed the end of enslavement. But the funeral only confirmed that smart British society was already doing its best to forget Livingston, now that he belonged to the trashy Daily Telegraph, the New York Herald, and the rest of the disreputable popular rags. Even so, he was buried right in the middle of the nave, not far from the main entrance, right where nobody could possibly miss him. An enormous black gravestone was eventually paid for by a well-wisher. Yeah, we saw it when we watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. It's next along from the later tomb of the unknown warrior, which we could see was surrounded with poppies. Well, Livingston's gravestone included what were supposedly the last words he'd written. They refer to the end of enslavement. Quotes, all I can add in my solitude is, may heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English or Turk, who will help heal this sore of the world. Sounds very odd. Well, as the Reverend Horace Waller, the editor of Livingston's Diaries, pointed out, the words, in fact, come from a letter that Stanley Uh had produced (laughs) addressed to the editor of the New York Herald. It's very odd American, English or Turk. Yeah, with American first. (laughs) Rather adds to the suspicion that it was Stanley and not Livingston who had, in fact, written it. (laughs) (laughs) But that same editor, Horace Waller, who criticised the words, apparently invented the famous scene of Livingston dying on his knees at prayer. You see, point is that by now, the real Dr Livingston had been buried as much metaphorically under layers of myth as under a broad black stone in Westminster Abbey. The events that followed Livingston's funeral are perhaps important for the light they shed on everything that Livingston was not. 
Having declared that he would complete what Livingston had begun, Henry Morton Stanley undertook what historical geographer Felix Driver describes as three more momentous journeys. Stanley crossed the African continent from east to west, traced the length of the Congo and established the Congo Free State under the morally dubious patronage of King Leopold II of Belgium. The new Belgian Congo quickly earned a reputation for shocking atrocity. Stanley's final foray took him into the southern Sudan, supposedly to rescue a provincial governor, but in fact to seize territory for Britain there. These expeditions were everything that Livingston's, almost without exception, had not been. Extremely well-funded, extremely well-led and brilliantly successful. They were also starkly brutal. Stanley had smashed and bullied his way through what he openly called Darkest Africa, even carrying one of Hiram Maxim's new machine guns on his final trip and leaving a shocking trail of destruction. He laughed at philanthropy as, quote, soft, sentimental, sugar and honey, milk and water kind of talk. His brazen bullying style earned him the African nickname Bula Matari, breaker of rocks. Whatever the cover stories he invented, Stanley's expeditions were intended to grab and occupy African lands. One result was the wholesale mapping of Central Africa in a way that the tentative efforts of explorers like Burton, Speke and Livingston had barely begun to do. The other, after the International Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1885, was to inspire the wholesale partition of Africa by the European powers, what we now know as the Scramble for Africa. It created the murderous map of Western-style states, completely ill-fitted to African society, under which so many still suffer and die. And all along, the ghost of Livingston, the quiet abolitionist, the lover of the Africans, continued to be invoked to justify the subjugation of the continent to European empires. It's a shocking story. Modern historical geographers have explored at great length... And it often has to be said in vocabulary of great length too. <laughs> yes. How Livingston was a character who could be made to fit almost any Victorian preoccupation, whether it was sympathy for the African people or brutal occupation. Working class radicalism and nonconformity or conventional piety, science, respectability and much besides. It was clearly, in fact, painfully true... In 1893, the Secretary of the Royal Geographical Society, John Kelty, looked back over the eight years that had passed since the International Berlin Conference had set off the terrible European scramble for Africa. Livingston, wrote Kelty, above all, besides many men of minor note, had aroused an interest in Africa unparalleled in the annals of geography, while Livingston's death turned African exploration into a kind of holy crusade. A holy crusade, Stanley, holy. As historian Stephanie Barchevsky explains, the peremptory occupation of Africa needed something to justify its barbarity. After all, quotes, there was no way to pretend that Africa was an empty land awaiting European exploitation. The colonisation of Africa represented imperialism in its most naked form. Livingston had spent most of his life with Africans searching for a way to shield them from the violent intrusions of outsiders. You have to say that if his memory could be recruited to a cause as shocking as the scramble for Africa, then there was nothing to which his name couldn't be hitched. 
For decades, by contrast, the British geographical establishment treated Henry Morton Stanley, the man who had in reality done more than anyone to lay the groundwork for Britain's African empire, as a fraud and an imposter. In August 1872, when Stanley was newly back from finding Livingston, he'd been invited to address the geographical section of the British Association at Brighton. 3,000 earnest geographers heard the journalist describe himself as a troubadour, sent to relate the tale of the old man Livingston and his travels. With the usual enormous map, he defended Livingston's and Sir Roderick Murchison's theories about the Central African Basin and the rivers that flowed out from it. But Murchison had died the previous year, and few British geographers any longer believed this stuff. Stanley found the hall turning against him. The chairman, Francis Galton, challenged Stanley on his own true identity, and then he poured scorn on his, quote, sensational geography. Well, Golden was hardly a sugar-and-honey philanthropist. He was, among other things, a leading eugenicist. But by now the geographers were muttering among themselves that Stanley was a scoundrel. The editor of Livingston's journals, Horace Waller, declared that Stanley was, quote, utterly unworthy of credence. When, much later, the Royal Geographical Society, cowed by popular opinion, begrudgingly awarded Stanley one of its gold medals, many of its members just resigned. <laughs> As the historian Justin Driver points out, however talented Stanley might have been, he simply lacked the personal and social credentials to be admitted into polite society. Livingston had had almost as humble and difficult a childhood as Stanley and had none of the required aristocratic affectations. But he was a missionary and a doctor and his conversation was wrapped in a thick Scottish accent, which yeah. people have always loved. Yeah, the aristocracy always loved that. Livingston's apparent modesty and straightforwardness made up for what he lacked in manners, whereas Stanley, the puffed-up self-publicist, was more at home in Parliament, where he was actually elected in 1890, soon after returning from his final expedition, and where the doorman greeted him predictably with... <laughs> Mr Stanley, I presume Stanley apparently never got the joke I don't, I don't believe that <laughs> I don't believe that for a minute By 1890, even the geographical establishment was having to admit that Stanley's achievements had been remarkable After all, Africa was now a colonial battleground and Stanley had gifted the British an enormous head start a huge Stanley and African exhibition was staged in March to November of that year in the Victoria Gallery in London's Regent Street. It portrayed, as Driver points out, quotes Africa as the dark continent, the poisoned arrows, pygmies, spears, fetishes and idols, a marketable Africa widely associated with Henry Morton Stanley. Well, Livingston would have hated it, but it was Stanley's bust that now dominated the foyer. The most controversial exhibits were named Gutu and Inyokwana. They were two young boys originally from north of the Transvaal, supposedly, res yeah. supposedly rescued from slavery. Their inclusion ended in a court case in which it was argued that they were still effectively being held as slaves. Well, the issue was never really clarified and they were made wards of court. 
the striking comparison, which has so far passed the historians by, is with that spectacular show staged in London just three years before in 1887 by another self-publicising genius made famous by the white seizure of Indigenous territory, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill's all-American spectacular had occupied seven acres at Earl's Court and packed spectators in for six months, including a Royal Command performance. It, too, like Stanley's exhibition, had exhibited so-called natives. In this case, an entire Native American village with men, women and children. They demonstrated their dances and ceremonies and taken part in staged battles. But, as we see in our series on the Wild West... Buffalo Bill Cody paid his Native Americans at the same rate as everyone else. Whereas Stanleys were held as slaves, Livingston was represented at the Stanley and African exhibition only by uh, a few of his teaspoons. <laughs> I can't quite believe that. <laughs> but, well, when it had been suggested to Livingston that Stanley would make a fortune out of him, he's uh -huh. supposed to have written back... Quotes, he's heartily welcome, for it's a great deal more than I could ever make out of myself. Oh. Well, sounds true to the man. At least we can be thankful that it was Livingston's reputation that eventually outshone Stanley's. Yeah. Livingston had been a talented narrator and a competent scientist. His travels among the Africans were unprecedented for his sheer gutsy survival and his unwavering longing to find sympathy for African ways of life nor should we doubt his religious devotion. But Livingston's legend was the product of the time in which he lived. Nobody would ever have heard of him had not circumstances furnished him in succession with two quite extraordinary patrons. They both used him for their own ends. In a brilliant campaign to raise significant cash for the Royal Geographical Society and incidentally find evidence for his own theory about the geology of Central Africa, Sir Roderick Murchison had made a gauche and difficult Scotsman into a darling of the English rich. He even succeeded in keeping him in the attention of those who mattered years after Livingston had ceased to achieve anything useful. Tellingly, Livingston, who made many loyal friends despite being an impossible colleague, described Murchison as, quote, the best friend I ever had. And then, just after Murchison's death in 1871, Stanley, the workhouse boy made good, the American Herald's special correspondent, had stepped in and he had used the old doctor, whom he genuinely admired, as a ladder with which to take British popular sentiment, not to mention Africa itself, by storm. Stanley's presumption earned him the lasting scorn and hatred of the British establishment. Dr Livingston, I presume. But his ability as a publicist won Livingston a place in the nation's affection, and that would live on much longer. The passing of Livingston's cause from the gentleman scientific geographer Murchison to the journalist and bludgeoning imperialist Stanley signifies an important shift. It was a change to a new and terrifying attitude towards colonisation. But also, because it coincided with the rapid growth of the popular newspapers, it marked the start of a period in which the press drove a craze for exploration and created its heroes. They wouldn't be the committee men like Murchison, nor for the most part would they be the efficient but unsympathetic operators like Stanley. They would be, much more often, the noble failures like Livingston. It would, after all, not be about anything useful that was achieved. This would all be about romance. <laughs> 
There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.